2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and, I am persuaded, now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God gave us, sorry, for the Spirit of God gave us, does not make us timid, but gives power, love, and self-discipline. Thanks, Caroline. Good evening to you all. Um, We've heard of God's grace and mercy already this evening. Let's pray for that grace now as we seek to understand his word and what it says to us tonight. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your grace, and we do pray that by your grace we would understand what you're saying to us this evening. We do pray you would encourage us. We do pray you would fan into flame that gift that you have already given us. Lord, make us uh, aware of your power, your love. Make our lives full of self-control. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in case you're not aware yet, living the Christian life is not easy. It's a positive start to a sermon, isn't it? It's easy to believe in our heads that um, Jesus died for our sins so that we can be forgiven, we can be made right with God. But to allow that belief to take over our whole lives, which is what we should do if our faith is genuine, is a harder prospect. Because the devil is constantly trying to undermine our faith. And being a pastor is even harder, as I mentioned this morning, because you have a responsibility for the faith of others. And so if the devil can attack you and bring you down, he may bring others down with you. So it's quite providential that this passage from 2 Timothy comes on the same day that Wellesley has been inducted as a pastor in this church. But although a lot of what it says here is relevant to him... It's, of course, relevant to all of us because we are all in some way ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just by way of a bit of background to to this letter, the letters um, uh, to Timothy and Titus are commonly known as the pastoral epistles because they give instruction by Paul to Timothy and Titus concerning the pastoral care of churches. The historical situation is thought to be that after Paul's imprisonment in Rome, um, when he was under house arrest around AD 60, 62, um, he probably began his fourth missionary journey, during which time he commissioned Titus to remain in Crete and Timothy to remain in charge of the church in Ephesus. And we've got a map um, just coming up in case you don't know where these places are. Uh, Crete is here and Ephesus is up there. Uh, Paul then moved on to, to Philippi, which is up here, 
where he wrote his first letter to Timothy and his letter to Titus around AD 63, 65. And in that first letter, he gave instructions to Timothy to, to help him get the young church in Ephesus on a sound footing. And that included refuting false teachings, um, instructions on worship, appointment of church leaders, and advice on practical care. Later, Paul returned to Rome, where he was imprisoned for a second time when the Roman Emperor Nero started his crackdown on Christians. And that was about AD 66. So it's from prison um, that Paul wrote this second letter before he was executed. So the amazing thing about this letter is that Paul, who's encouraging Timothy to stand firm in his faith, is himself in need of encouragement. He's lonely. He's asking Timothy to visit him, probably for the last time before he dies. And in chapter 4, if you flick on, um, verse 6, he writes in many ways what was his, his epitaph. Chapter 4, verse 6, he writes, For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Wouldn't it be great to say those words ourselves, that we've fought the the good fight, we've finished the race, we've kept the faith. But up to the end, um, Paul is still carrying on in his ministry. Uh, He's still being useful to God. And the way he's doing that is by uh, encouraging other ministers of the Lord. So he's encouraging Timothy. What do we know about um, Timothy? Well, he was converted in, in Lystra, which is... Um, oops, pressed the wrong one. Uh, much about me, haven't I? <laughs> here we are. Um, Lystra is around here. That's when Paul did his, uh, one of his early missionary journeys. Um, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 13 and 14. Paul's father, uh, I'm sorry, Timothy's father was Greek. His mother and grandmother were Jews who became Christians, as we read in this passage. And Paul later joined Paul on his missionary journeys before being sent off by Paul to continue his work in Corinth and then afterwards in, in Ephesus. So Ephesus, where Timothy is now when he receives this letter, was a major commercial center in um, what is now Turkey with uh, direct access to to sea and land to the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire. And one of its most impressive buildings was the the Temple of Artemis, one of the uh, the seven wonders in the ancient world, and dedicated to the Roman goddess Diana. So it's in a, a very hostile environment, if you like, to the gospel, that Timothy and the young church are facing many challenges. There was opposition, there was false teaching, uh, there was suffering. Things that all gospel workers will experience from, from time to time. At the prayer meeting last uh, Tuesday night, we were praying for some of our missionaries. Uh, and a common theme which came through, whether it was Julian in Romania, whether it was Bethan and Tenebu in Senegal, uh, whether it was David and Billy in, in India, was opposition, both from within and outside the church. Now, it's clear from this letter as you read these opening verses that, that Paul has a real fondness for Timothy, doesn't he? There's a sort of father-son relationship here. He writes, my dear son, or literally my beloved child. Paul has set him apart for God's ministry by, by the laying on of hands. And as we know from Paul's first letter, he, he's young. 
And Paul is writing to him because he's afraid that he might be tempted to give up. And over the course of this series, as we work through the letter, we will see that Paul encourages him in different ways to stand firm, to keep the faith. We'll see that he encourages them to not be ashamed of the gospel, to endure hardship in that second chapter of Timothy, to be useful to God, to continue in the scriptures, to preach the word. And in this opening passage we're looking at this evening, he tells them to fan into flame the gift of God. We'll come on to that, but one word which recurs a number of times in this passage, if you look down, uh, is remember. Have a look at verse 3, when he writes, I thank God, whom I serve as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. I don't know what your memory is like, but um, I guess as humans, we'll all forget from, from time to time, some of us more than others. We forget birthdays. We forget appointments, we forget things we promised to do that we didn't do. We forget things we have done, not just from our childhood, but just from um, last week sometimes. You ask the question, have a good week? How would you, you get up to? What did I do last week? I hope it's not just me that thinks like that. But when it comes to the most important thing in our lives, our relationship with God... There are some things we do well to remember. And these are the basics that Paul is reminding Timothy of in the opening part of this letter. And the first is to remember the promise of God. The promise of God in that first um, verse is that we have received new life in Christ Jesus. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with a promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. That promise of life comes up a number of times in the Bible. In John 3.16, a very familiar verse to, to many of you, I'm sure. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. To have life is to be connected to the source of life. Rather than being cut off, separate from the creator of this universe... We are reconciled to him. We have peace with God. Once we were enemies, but now we are friends and we can live life to the fullest as God intended us to live, knowing his peace, knowing his presence with us. But how do we get that life? How do we get those, those blessings? Whereas as um, Mark said earlier, it's through grace and mercy. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace and mercy are two sides of the coin. Mercy is not giving us the punishment we deserve. Grace is giving us the blessings we don't deserve. The amazing thing about grace and mercy is that God can use them to change the life of the most hardened sinner, such as Paul. Just look back in 1 Timothy, chapter 1 for a minute, verse 15. Just look at how Paul describes his own testimony. In verse 15, 
He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul might have considered himself the worst sinner, but however good or bad a moral life we have lived, we all need God's mercy and grace. And that includes Timothy. The reason he is enjoying life and peace is because God showed him mercy. And so Paul is saying, remember that promise of life that God gave you. You are his child. Nothing can change that. Whatever injustice you experience, whatever opposition you face, whatever suffering you experience, God's grace and mercy don't just bring us to faith. They sustain us in our faith. And we feel like maybe giving up, when we're being led into temptation and have failed again, when we go through suffering, God keeps his promise of life. That is what defines us as Christians. There are lots of things we can lose in this life. Lots of things that God may choose to take away from us. But he will never take away the promise of life. And that is a huge encouragement. Secondly, remember the people of God. What Paul also does in verse 3 to 5 here is to thank God as he remembers Timothy. He says, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. It's very personal, isn't it? He says, recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I might be filled with joy. There's a great bond here, isn't there, which they have, um, which is being expressed here in the tears that Timothy shed. Maybe when they last left each other. And Paul says he longs to see him again so that he'll be filled with joy. Maybe the last time before he dies. What is it about Timothy that he remembers so fondly? Was it hanging out down the pub together, having a good chat about the, uh, the footy? Was it all that help that Timothy gave him when uh, he needed somebody? No, he writes, I am reminded of your sincere faith. Your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Paul thanks God for Timothy, and what he remembers most about him is his sincere faith. What will people remember most about us. It'd be great, wouldn't it, if it was our faith. Paul thanks God for how Timothy came to faith, how uh, through his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. We don't know how much time difference there was between these conversions, but these people seem to have been influential on Timothy coming to faith. And it's good to give thanks to God for the people he uses to bring us to faith and uh, encourage us in our faith. It's also good good to give thanks to God if he's used us to bring someone else to faith, uh, for giving us that great privilege that he should choose to use us with all our our many weaknesses. What Paul is also thanking God for is Timothy's ongoing faith. How he's willing to live that out in the face of suffering and opposition. 
Of course, in writing uh, about how he's remembering Timothy, Paul is indirectly saying to Timothy, remember the people of God. Remember those who brought you to faith and the people whose faith can give you an encouragement at this time. It's often through the prayers of others that we come to faith, through the prayers of others that we are sustained in our faith. Remember, if you were here this morning, Wells, you're talking about Alan Gibson sharing how uh, there was a group of, of elderly um, people in his church who were praying for him constantly as a, as a pastor in that church. And when they gradually, one by one, died off and went to be with, with the Lord in glory, he felt the lack of their prayers. Paul is constantly remembering Timothy in his prayers. Night and day, he remembers him, which emphasizes frequency. It's a great challenge, isn't it, to us all? Not to wait for certain times when we pray, but to have that attitude of continually praying when the Lord puts somebody on our minds, praying for them. I think so often we we spend our time thinking and worrying about things going on in our life, our worries, our cares. But as we pray and thank God for others, how less important those other things seem to us. Remembering, other, remembering others who've had a positive spiritual impact on us is a great encouragement. Who was it that helped you come to faith? Can you think back on who that was? Was it your parents? Maybe a, a youth worker, a friend? Maybe a colleague at work? Think of those who may not have contributed to your coming to faith, but have been a great example to you whether you know them personally or just maybe through reading uh, their testimonies. Those who've gone through great suffering are a great uh, great example, aren't they? Particularly when the reason we are struggling is because of something we think is a huge thing, but in comparison to what they've gone through, it's actually pretty, pretty minor. We'll surely be celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Just remember some of the faithful servants of Christ in the 16th century. Think of the Oxford Martyrs, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, Thomas Cranmer, the three Protestant bishops who were killed for their faith under the persecution of Queen Mary and whose memorial still stands in Oxford. Remember the heroes of the Bible. We've been looking in our morning sermon series of Daniel recently, haven't we? What an amazing example of someone who stood by what he believed even when facing the possibility of death. He didn't allow being in exile to make him compromise his way of living. He didn't allow a law that prevented him from praying to do what he knew was right. Remember Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who were told by King Nebuchadnezzar if they didn't bow down and worship an image of gold, they'll be thrown into a blazing furnace. What did they say to King Nebuchadnezzar? They said, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. They would not betray the one true God. Remember the people of God. And finally, remember the power of God. God gives us all tasks to do. Those tasks may change over time. 
But he doesn't leave us alone to do them in our own strength. He equips us to do them. And that was what we were looking at this morning, wasn't it, as we commissioned Wellesley? The fact that God was equipping him for ministry. The most important thing about any ministry is the state of our heart. Are we serving for the right reason? Are we trusting our own strength? Or are we trusting in God's strength to do it and doing it for his glory? In the same way that Paul, it says here, was an apostle by the will of God, Timothy was set apart by God's apostle Paul to be a gospel worker. The laying on of hands is a symbolic gesture to, to set someone apart, as we did with Wellesley this morning. So God appointed Timothy. He gave him a gift, the gift of preaching the word. And the reminder of the laying on of hands is to remember that it is God who has called us into ministry. And Paul is reminding Timothy of that. If this was a sermon directed at Wellesley, we will be saying, you need to keep coming back to the inspiration of your calling to remind you of the importance of the task you've been given and the sufficiency of the grace that enables you to perform it. And it's not just for Wellesley. Whatever task we have been given, however small we might think it is, God doesn't commission us without giving us the, the strength, the gift to do it. But it is possible to neglect the use of that gift. I possibly once uh, had the gift of being able to play the piano. Um, but I've neglected that gift, and every now and again I might show you just how badly I have neglected it. But to neglect a ministry gift is far more serious. We need to keep it alive. In the same way that when a fire dies down, you need to get a, a bellows and, and give it a blast of air to fan it into flame. We need to do that with, us, with our gifts of ministry. Paul writes, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now if you link that with the following verse that comes and refers to Paul's timidity, you may interpret that as Timothy being a bit timid as a person, maybe prone to disappointment and failure, and that in Timothy's discouragement the gift is being neglected. But of course it may just mean that Paul is encouraging him to keep the fire at full strength. Keep, keep using your gift to its full potential. Refresh it continually. Don't waver. Don't become timid. But how do we keep our gift alive? Well, by asking for the Holy Spirit to keep us on fire. For the Spirit of God, for the Spirit God gave us, does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. What does our power, love, and self-discipline look like? Well, power, we need power to complete the task God has given us. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we must have a powerful personality, but we have this strength of character to complete the task that we have been given. The power comes from the Holy Spirit. He enables us to do things which we would not necessarily be able to do by our own strength, particularly if we are by nature timid. We heard that this morning, didn't we? Dano saying about one of the, the, the students who was very timid in terms of sharing his faith. But over time, the Spirit enabled him to do that. Next week, we will see in verse 8 that uh, the power of God enables Timothy to suffer for the gospel. 
We need and rely on God's power. Love. We need love to love those who are opposing us. To love those who are not very lovable. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Self-discipline. It's when we are under attack that we are most vulnerable to losing our self-control and saying or doing something that we know is wrong. But as we come to, to an end, where is opposition coming from for you? Often the devil will attack us where we are weakest. It's often not where we necessarily are weak, but where we feel weak where we feel insecure, where we lack confidence. Maybe we feel rubbish as a parent or a husband or a wife. Maybe we feel a failure in the workplace. Maybe we feel rubbish in our ministry in the church. Maybe we feel rubbish in our relationships. Don't allow those feelings of failure to affect your faith. Remember that God promises believers eternal life. And he has given you that life out of his grace and his mercy. And however much of a failure the devil may make us feel, that cannot affect our relationship with God. Enjoy being at peace with him. Remember other Christians who suffered in their faith and how God has kept them going and follow their example. Remember that God will give you all the power and love and self-discipline you need if you ask him. But of course, we shouldn't just wait until we are in that situation where we feel discouraged before we do these things. We need to be doing them all the time so that we don't feel discouraged. Fan into flame the gift of life. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. Amen.